This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. So the Transfiguration is one of the most famous events in the life of Christ, one of the great milestones of Jesus' earthly ministry. There's the incarnation we celebrate at Christmas, the baptism of Jesus, the Transfiguration where he goes up the mountain to be changed in glory, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And therefore, the Transfiguration is one of the most important events in the life of Christ. And in fact, it's the great subject of many, many works of Christian art. If you go back to the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, you'll see many paintings about Jesus being transfigured. And especially in Eastern Orthodox theology, the transfiguration takes on major importance. In fact, if you are an Orthodox painter of icons, the first thing they set you to do is to paint the transfiguration. And if you are able to paint the light that is glowing off Jesus you are able to paint any kind of icon. That's the thinking. And it takes on major importance in their theology in how we Christians ourselves are changed into the image of God. But we often find it difficult to grasp ourselves, what is the significance of this event? It's very striking. It's very visually dazzling. But what does it actually mean for us? This afternoon, I flipped through um, a really good children's Bible with all these stories about Jesus. And all the important events were there, but I was not surprised to see there was nothing in that story, in that um, children's Bible, about the transfiguration. Because it's not a story that has an immediate cash value, that we can see what it means and how we can put it into practice. It's a bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Jesus goes up this really tall mountain, He starts glowing, a cloud comes, and a voice speaks, and then the cloud disappears, the glow fades away, and he goes back down the mountain. What on earth does this mean, and what does it mean for us? Well, hopefully, as we roll up our sleeves and get into this passage, God will make some of these things clear to us. The first thing to note is this, the time, because Mark begins his little story by saying that this happened after six days. And Mark is normally not really that concerned with lengths of time. To my knowledge, this is the first time in this gospel that he's using an exact time frame. And this should trigger us to something, that this is connected closely with what just happened. Jesus' prediction that he is going to suffer and to die. And in Mark's gospel, as well as in Luke And in Matthew, that transfiguration is connected with Jesus' prediction that he is going to die. So you can imagine, after Jesus had told his disciples to their shock and to their horror that the way of the Messiah was going to be a way of shame and rejection and suffering and death, that they were deeply disturbed. And I imagine that it was a very quiet week as they walked along the road with Jesus, digesting and meditating and wondering, what on earth does this mean? Because it was not at all the path of glory and triumph that they were expecting. Suddenly, everything had been changed. The rug had been yanked out from under their feet. 
And the path ahead was one that was deeply confusing and deeply disturbing to them. So I imagine it was a very quiet and meditative six days. But it seems like those six days have another significance from the Old Testament. Because if you read in the book of Exodus, where Moses famously climbed Mount Sinai to appear before God and to see the glory of God, Exodus 24, 16 says, For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And all through this story of the transfiguration, we are going to see links and echoes of what happened in the book of Exodus. So Jesus goes up this high mountain with his three chosen disciples. And if you've read your Bible, you know that mountains are very significant. Again and again, really important things happen on the summit of mountains. A mountain is kind of a suburb of heaven. Physically speaking, it's the closest you can get to God. Ascending the mountain breathing the pure air, seeing the world spread out before you, and being physically as close to the sky as you can. Symbolically, it's all about drawing close to God. And the mountain in the Bible is always the place where people meet with God, and God shows them his will. It's a place of encounter and a place of revelation. And the most important mountain in the Bible, in the Old Testament at least, is Mount Sinai, where Moses, the leader of the freed, liberated people of Israel, ascends this mountain that has a dark black cloud covering it. It's rumbling with thunder, and flashes of lightning are coming out of the cloud, and God summons Moses to ascend the mountain. And you can imagine the fear and trembling that would have filled the heart of Moses and his three companions as they went up Mount Sinai. Moses was summoned by God because no one would have dared to go up that mountain of their own free choice. In fact, a fence was built around the base of Mount Sinai by the command of God, and anyone who stepped across that line would be stoned to death because coming close to God is a place of electric danger. It's not safe for human beings just to walk up to God And look into his face. So Moses had to be summoned by God and given special permission and a special invitation to come up to God's presence. But notice that Jesus is not summoned. He feels the freedom to ascend the mountain of the Lord on his own initiative. Jesus feels no fear. There is no hesitation. There is no fear and trembling in the legs of Jesus. He is going where he belongs, face to face with God. And there at the summit of this high mountain with Peter and James and John, these three awesomely privileged disciples, Mark tells us that Jesus is transfigured before them. His appearance changes radically from this very ordinary, completely normal-looking Jewish carpenter-slash-rabbi. He is transfigured. He is transformed before their startled eyes. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus' face was shining 
like the sun. And his clothes become dazzling white. So Mark kind of awkwardly tells us, like, no bleacher on earth could bleach anyone's clothes this white. Jesus' clothes are shining with this unearthly brilliance, a white so pure you would never behold it on this planet. That's what Jesus is shining like. Here's what Pope Benedict XVI, this is the retired pope, this is what he writes in his book, Jesus of Nazareth. Because Moses had been talking to God, God's light streams upon him and makes him radiant. Remember in the Exodus account when Moses descends from the mountain? His face is glowing because he had seen the glory of God. But the light that causes the light that causes Moses to shine, it comes to him from the outside. It's a reflected glory. But Jesus shines from within. He shines from within. He does not simply receive light. He shines because he is light from light. The glory of God is shining out of Jesus. The Gospel of John does not have the story of the transfiguration. But John chapter 1 most likely is a reflection on it. And there the Apostle John, one of the three who had come up the mountain, says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. We have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord who wraps himself in light as with a garment. Jesus Christ is the ultimate theophany. A theophany in the Old Testament is a manifestation of God. And at different times, different holy people and prophets were privileged to receive this awesome revelation of the glory of God. But the highest and greatest and most brilliant and dazzling manifestation of the presence of the divine is Jesus Christ himself. And it is striking that this transfiguration of Jesus, clearly in Mark's account, is not for his own benefit. It's for the benefit of these three disciples. Jesus stands there, Mark tells us, and he is transfigured before them. Something is being shown to them, is being displayed to them. See, Jesus himself does not change in the transfiguration. Only his appearance does. This is not a promotion for Jesus, an upgrade to his powers. He is just as divine here at the top of the mountain as he is at the bottom. It's just that we were blind to it. We did not recognize the presence of God in the face of Jesus. And so this transfiguration is not an addition to Jesus. It's a kind of subtraction. The veil is taken away for a moment. And in the face of Jesus, these three disciples gaze upon the face of the Son of God himself. What an awesome, holy experience that must have been for them. And here, too, we have this preview of Christ's glorified and exalted resurrection body. Jesus Christ is more awesome 
than we could possibly realize. And here at the transfiguration, we see who Jesus really was before all time, the glory that he always shared with his father. And we also see the glory that he is going to share forever and ever and ever. And so when we think about Jesus, hopefully we have uh, feelings of faith and trust and love. But like the disciples, do we have a feeling of holy fear before him? A sense of Jesus' massive and terrifying awesomeness. The Apostle John also had another revelation of the transfigured Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, he's an old man. All the other disciples have died. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. And as he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, Jesus appears before him. No longer this lowly carpenter rabbi, but someone whose eyes are burning like fire, whose face shines like the sun, someone so awesome and terrifying that the apostle falls at Christ's feet as though dead. That is how fearful Jesus is. And we have to be careful in reading the Gospels that we do not become too kind of chummy and intimate with Jesus as though we are equals with him and he's just kind of our buddy and our pal and our friend. Jesus ought to be the object of our holy worship. And we should be bowing on our faces before his glory. That's my first point this afternoon. Be in awe of the glory of the Son. And as the disciples are suddenly face to face with Jesus and his face shining like the sun and his clothes glowing white, these two Old Testament figures suddenly materialize on the top of the mountain, Elijah and Moses. And somehow the disciples immediately recognize who these guys are with spiritual insight. Both Elijah and Moses share certain commonalities. Both demonstrated the power of God, the liberating power of God, in signs and wonders that were meant to free God's people from slavery. And both were granted the special theophany, the special manifestation of the glory of God on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses has to be hidden in the cleft of the rock, and Elijah hides in the cave as God passes by and declares who he is. And both were bodily taken up into heaven. Moses died in some lonely valley. And Deuteronomy, I think, tells us that God just took his body up to heaven. And Elijah, even more remarkably, ascended into the sky in a chariot of fire. Wow, what an exit to make. And so out of all the people in the Old Testament, these are the only two, I guess Enoch being the third, whose bodies are actually in heaven with God. And now God has allowed them to appear on the top of this mountain for this mountaintop summit with Jesus. And the subject of conversation, Mark does not tell us, just that they were speaking with one another. But if you look at Luke, Luke tells us that they were talking about Jesus' exodus. That's the Greek word that Luke uses, the exodus of Jesus, his departure from this world, his liberating departure from this world. 
And as they're talking, they're consulting with Jesus, these great figures of the Old Testament of salvation history. Peter, Peter, Peter. He has to butt in. He has to say something. And he starts, you can imagine him talking very rapidly and nervously. Oh, wow, Rabbi, it's, this is great. It's, it's really good that we're here. Do you think we could, we, could, um, we, could, we could put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, perhaps? And Mark tells us that Peter is saying this because he didn't know what to say. Most of us, when we don't know what to say, we wisely keep our mouth shut. But some of us have to fill the silence. And Peter is one of those guys. He just has to open his mouth and start talking. He's clearly a verbal processor. And this is completely with the character of Peter. What I love about these stories of Peter we find in Mark's gospel is that it is Mark especially who is associated with Peter. And at some point, Mark seems to have been Peter's assistant, his right-hand man. And his gospel mostly comes from Peter's first-hand account. The other gospel writers are much more respectful to Peter, and they save him a little embarrassment about sharing this full story. And surely Mark would not have shared this about Peter unless Peter was looking over his shoulder saying, oh, make sure you put that in over there. I was a complete idiot at the time. Make sure you write that down. And I love these little evidences in the gospel about the truthfulness of the witnesses. Because certainly, if I had been one of the three, vouchsafe this amazing experience of the glory of Christ, I would have been very careful to have edited that part out. If I wanted to establish myself as an authority in the church and the leader of this cult that I really made up, I would not be sharing embarrassing stories about myself. But Peter must have insisted Put that in and show how foolish and silly I was in this amazing moment, almost ruined by the stupid thing that Peter says. Why on earth would Peter want this to happen? Why would he want to build these shelters and, and have Jesus and these, these two great figures spend some time in them? Chrysostom, the, uh, the great preacher of the early church, says this, that Peter wanted to settle down in the security of this temporary bliss. Let's just extend this moment. We're having this great experience of the glory of God, and let's just hang on to this moment and let it last as long as it possibly could. And Chrysostom adds that Peter also wanted to prevent the descent to Jerusalem to the cross. This is the kind of stuff that Peter and the disciples really wanted to happen. Amazing manifestations of the presence of God and power and glory. Maybe Jesus is forgetting about all that other dark and dreary stuff. This, this is what we want worship and following Jesus to look like. But he doesn't know what to say because he is so frightened. They all are. And his greatest mistake here is how he venerates his rabbi. He's treating Jesus as an equal of Moses and Elijah. One booth for each of you guys. And for a Jew in the first century, that was an amazing honor indeed to give to Jesus. Wait a second. This guy with the glowing face clearly is a lot more important than we thought. And I'm going to honor him by putting him at the same level as the two greatest figures in the Old Testament. But what's going to become clear is that Peter has not honored Jesus 
nearly as high as he ought to. Jesus is greater than the greatest and mightier than the mightiest of the Old Testament saints and heroes. And as Peter is is jabbering away, perhaps his voice trails off awkwardly, a cloud appears. A cloud appears on the top of the mountain. This is the Shekinah glory of God. The glory cloud of the Lord Yahweh himself that descends to fill the tabernacle and makes the people stagger back in fear. This cloud is thick with the presence of God. And the cloud overshadows them and covers them. And in Luke's account, he tells us that they were afraid as they entered the cloud. As well they might have been. Can you imagine this dark mist overshadowing you, feeling the closeness of a holy God, and feeling your own frailty and sinfulness as you have never felt it before. And the glory cloud of God is deeply dangerous to human beings. It's just too much for the mere human-created frame to endure. And you can start feeling yourself coming apart at the seams under the weight, the crushing weight of God's presence. And as they are standing there in this dark and terrifying mist, a voice comes from the cloud. The voice of God, and it says this, This is my son. Listen to him. Notice that this voice is not addressed to Jesus. At his baptism, the voice said, You are my son, whom I love. That was a private experience for Jesus. But this voice is not for Jesus' benefit. It's not so that he can feel secure and affirmed. This voice is speaking not to Jesus, but to Peter, James, and John. This is my son. Do not confuse Jesus of Nazareth with Moses and Elijah. Great as they were, they are mere servants. Jesus is the divine son. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. He is in a category completely on his own, and he is the son whom I love. The eternal and infinite, never-ending love of God rests completely on this man standing on the top of this mountain. This is what the disciples need to realize. They've been summoned all the way up this mountain for the express purpose that they might behold the awesome glory of Jesus and hear the voice of God directed especially to them telling them exactly who this ordinary rabbi is. And the command from God is listen to him. Listen to him. And it is striking in this account filled with so much rich and dazzling visual imagery, the command is not look at him, but listen to him. Listen to him. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. And to ignore Jesus is to ignore God. 
Jesus speaks with the voice of God. And this whole episode is to establish Jesus' authority to the disciples. See, the transfiguration is an extraordinary, exalted experience that only three of the disciples got to witness. The other nine did not. They were left below, down in the valley, at the bottom of the mountain. And it's an extraordinary experience, never to be repeated, that you or I will not get to share in our lifetime here below. We don't get to have our own personal transfiguration experience. It's a once-for-all thing that happens in the Bible. But we do get to hear the voice of Jesus. And we are called to join all the disciples in listening to Jesus and submitting to his voice. If Jesus' voice is the voice of God, then we must heed the words that Jesus calls us to trust. And we must listen to the commands that Jesus calls us to obey without reserve and without hesitation. But it seems certain that in this context of the transfiguration, that God's command, listen to him, are specifically directed to the words that the disciples found especially hard to swallow. The words that they were resisting with all their might. Jesus' announcement that he was a Messiah who was going to suffer and be rejected and die. In fact, Peter had taken Jesus aside and rebuked him for coming up with such a crazy and foolish idea. And so the whole point of the transfiguration is to bring these guys to the top of the mountain, to show them Jesus' glory, to hear the voice of God saying, listen to Jesus. He knows what he's talking about when he says, this is what it means for me to be the Messiah. Yes, the way of Messiahship is the way of suffering and rejection and death. And that truth is so appalling and so shocking that the disciples need this extraordinary phenomena, this incredible revelation of God to even begin to break down their resistance to what Jesus' mission is all about. They need to see Christ's glory and bow before his authority so that they can get out of his way, let him go to the cross and fall in line behind him. So we, with the disciples, are called not only to be in awe of the glory of the Son, but also to be in awe before the voice of the Son. It's the voice of God. The theophany, this manifestation of glory, is graciously brief. Because if it had gone on much longer, the disciples surely would have died from being overwhelmed with God's presence. It's graciously brief. The cloud melts away. Jesus' face stops glowing. And his clothes look ordinary again. And Mark tells us that suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah have vanished with the cloud because their highest honor is to fade away in the full light of Christ. And the disciples see only Jesus. We should stop and savor that for a moment because it might be the most remarkable thing about this whole account of the transfiguration 
that Jesus chose to stay behind with his disciples. That is very good news that when the cloud vanished, Jesus was still there with them. What a horrible thing it would have been if the cloud had vanished and it was just the three of them staring at each other on top of the mountain. Or if they had seen Jesus ascending into the heavens, gazing up until he disappeared from their sight, like happened in the book of Acts with the ascension of Christ. Jesus is still with them, thank God. He did not ascend to heaven out of their sight. He did not return to the heavenly realm of bliss and love. He stays with his disciples. And perhaps the most miraculous thing is not that Jesus went up the mountain to be transfigured, but that he descended the mountain again to be crucified. So the final point to draw from this story is this. Be in awe of the son's mission. Not just in awe of his glory, not just in awe of his voice, but to tremble in awe at the son's mission. And as they descend, as they're climbing down the mountain, Jesus gives Peter and James and John orders. He strictly commands them, don't tell anyone about this until I have risen from the dead. Don't tell anyone. This is a secret. This is an amazing experience you have, you've had, but it is not ready to be shared yet. It's going to be misunderstood. We're going to save that for later when I rise from the dead. And the disciples are, they're confused. They keep the matter to themselves, only asking each other, what on earth does rising from the dead mean? Why is Jesus talking about rising from the dead? I mean, as good Jews, they believe in this general resurrection at the end of history, but Jesus talking in the near future about rising from the dead really confused them and boggled their minds. It was only when Jesus actually did rise from the tomb that all this stuff would begin to make sense, and they would be ready to share with the other nine the story of the transfiguration. Can you imagine Peter and James and John in the upper room? Jesus has risen from the dead. They're waiting for power to come from on high, and they're sitting there around the table, and suddenly in the silence... James says, oh my gosh, we completely forgot to tell you something that happened a couple months ago. We went up this mountain and Jesus' face started shining like the sun. And the other night, I'm like, oh my goodness, why didn't you tell us this? Because you would not have understood. None of us can understand now, until now, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now we understand what this revelation of his glory meant. But now, here going down the mountain, the disciples are still confused about God's timeline. They had this expectation of how things were supposed to happen. And all the stuff about suffering and dying and revelation of glory is deeply confusing to them. And they ask about Elijah, who they've just seen on the top of the mountain. Isn't he supposed to come first and restore all things? If you go to the book of Malachi, the very last few verses of the Old Testament. So before Mark, there's Matthew, then there's the book of Malachi. The last few verses... The last two verses say this. See, I will send the, the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. End of the Old Testament. No voice of God for 500 years. So you can imagine for a Jew in the first century waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the revelation of God, 
you were expecting some Elijah figure to come and make things ready to bring restoration, to turn the hearts of parents to their children and to bring reconciliation and peace and goodness and power and to clear the way so the Messiah could just sail right through and bring the promised kingdom of God. This is what these guys are expecting. Why then all this talk of suffering? It does not seem to fit with the program. My wife, Michelle, is taking a course on Star Wars right now. She's doing a film studies degree, and she's up to her neck in Star Wars. And it's this great epic story, isn't it, that goes over generations of, of uh, this family. And the ninth film and final film, hopefully, is going to come out next December to wrap up the whole incredible saga. And all these people who are deeply invested in Star Wars, and some people are freakishly dedicated to this whole film series, have been constantly thinking how this ninth film is going to turn out. And how is George Lucas and Disney going to bring this whole series to a satisfying conclusion, to wrap up all these different threads? How are Kylo Ren and Rey going to bring balance to the Force again? What's going to happen? And it's all being kept as a closely guarded secret. But we know that the final film unless it's horrifyingly awful, is going to, there's a certain range of options that the writers have to bring this film to a conclusion, isn't there? There's a certain set of expectations that we can have for how the final Star Wars film is going to turn out. And it would be an amazing set of writers indeed that were able to bring the story to a conclusion that nobody expected that no podcaster in his basement could possibly have figured out or imagined. And to have a story that is not only shocking and unexpected, but that turns out to be more profound and truly satisfying of everything that has gone before than any Star Wars freak could possibly have thought up. The first century Jews were far more obsessed with the Old Testament than any Star Wars fan is today. And despite them searching the scriptures and digging into every obscure verse and small, tiny prophetic book, they had no clue what the Messiah was really going to come and do. In retrospect, now, ah, we see how all these threads come together in Jesus' suffering and death. But they had no clue how this was going to turn out. And as an aside, we should say, this ought to give us a little modesty about our own predictions about Jesus' second coming, shouldn't it? If all these devout men and women of God completely miss the mark by what Jesus first came to do, I highly doubt that when Jesus returns a second and final time, he is going to be acting out completely according to the little programs and charts that you have in the back of your Bible. I'm sure we are all going to be stunned at how it actually turns out, not according to any of our programs. And certainly Jesus' first coming does not happen according to the program the Jews or the disciples have expected. Yes, Jesus says, Elijah has come already to begin to restore all things. He's come in the person of John the Baptist, dressed like him, appearing out of the wilderness. And just like Elijah was hunted by King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, he gets to ascend to heaven in a fiery chariot, but the second Elijah is hunted and imprisoned and beheaded 
at the will of King Herodias's wife, King Herod's wife, Herodias. And in the end, even Elijah does not get to escape martyrdom. He goes to heaven, and then, symbolically, he returns to suffer and die himself. If Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God and Son of Man, is called to this road of the cross, surely the prophet who prepares the way is going to be going ahead of him on that very road. It was written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. That was the plan from of old. So, as you draw this all to a close, thinking of the incredible significance of the transfiguration, we need to realize that we need a lot more than incredible mountaintop experiences of glory and power. Much as we would love those, And God has given us, some of us, some incredible revelations of who he is. But we need to be following Jesus back down the mountain, down into the realm of sin and Satan and death to serve God's will there. The Renaissance painter Raphael Sanzio painted at the age of 34. In 1517, he began to paint the Transfiguration a very common scene among Renaissance painters. And after three years, he died at the age of 37, leaving the painting unfinished. And his painting is very typical in some ways. You see the exalted Christ, his his face bathed in heavenly light. But what Raphael shows that almost no other painter shows is what is happening at the bottom of the mountain. And as Salmun is going to share with us next week, at the bottom of the mountain are the nine other disciples trying and failing to cast the demon out of this poor, possessed little boy. That's what's happening down at the bottom of the mountain. And that's where Jesus is headed. He's not continually ascending up to heaven to escape this realm of suffering and slavery and misery. He is going down the mountain for this little boy and for all of us. The transfiguration of Jesus is the beginning of our own transfiguration. As we begin to look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, as we gaze on his glorious face, as we meditate on the awesome descent of the light of God into this dark world, we find that we ourselves begin to be changed by the power of the Spirit. This is not a text where the cash value of application is easy. Oh, okay, here are the eight things I need to do in response to this. But the most important thing we need in order to change that process of sanctification Jessica was mentioning is to see Jesus, to behold his glory. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, meditating on the transfiguration. We all, who with unveiled faces contrast to Moses, contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus was just an ordinary carpenter rabbi, transfigured by divine glory. And we all look pretty ordinary this afternoon, don't we? We're about to head out into the ordinary world of suffering and misery and death. But here today, and every day, if we choose, we get to look into the face of Jesus. 
And as we do, God promises that he is transforming us also so that the light of Christ shines out from within also. And this all happens as we contemplate the glory of Jesus, especially in his suffering and death. The robes of the elect of the saints in the book of Revelation also glow white because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The transfiguration of God's holy people happens as we participate in Christ's atoning death on our behalf. That is where it happens. So that the shame and the rejection and the death of God's beloved Son become our glory and our acceptance and our everlasting life. It is very appropriate that we are about to celebrate Holy Communion today. As we not only remember, but participate in the death of Jesus, somehow, in a mysterious, mystical way, the Holy Spirit is changing us into his image. As we eat and drink in faith and receive the gift that God has for us. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.